0: Yeah, I saw your tweet about the passion involved in making this podcast.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. What do you think about that? Um, funny but sad. So no wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You have to explain to people what the tweet says. You can't just start talking
0: about it. Um, I mean, I was just assuming everyone follows Eugene Can on Twitter. Eugene tweeted. Yo, we made it to 100 episodes. Haha. Ha. What does passion look like? Amount of times we've complained about recording and editing? Zero. Total cumulative earnings for making it up? Zero. It is true. It, no, it is true. It is t- completely true. It's a very honest. But but could you in any way argue that we have made money incidentally um, i don't know if incidental is the right word but you know what i mean like the projects that you well, do that then lead to like
1: I don't know we have not been very commercial in our endeavors at making. to be honest i'm trying to i'm trying to work through this because it is a good question and i'm trying to think of where the spill-off is but it's like maybe the payoff is down the line maybe it's not anything that we've currently experienced and maybe there's a payoff down the line.
0: Okay, there does not exist a project that I got paid from and the client was like, I want to hire you specifically because of making it up. But I do feel there are a lot of conversations around this podcast and me doing this podcast. So it's not out of the question that I have had benefited in some way. Monetarily, I benefit
1: in other ways. Actually, I can walk that back because... In some ways, unexpected connections or conference is a byproduct of making it up, I'd say.
0: Oh, I see what you mean here because
1: we're like the demo conversation. I think that ultimately maybe it was the learnings from doing this regularly, understanding how to create a structure, like all these soft skills, I think they eventually spilled over into what eventually became unexpected connections.
0: Yeah. Hey there. You gotta all right. add to your tweet. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Can.
1: We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation.
0: If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. All right. You want to get started
1: or do you want Oh wait, you want to play rock paper scissors? No, I don't. I I want to stop doing that. I just Oh, okay. I don't know why, I just... You started I don't, it. I'm not feeling it. I just want to say, started it.
0: you started it. You It's your call. You can end it.
1: It's fine. I'm rescinding it because I think that it just doesn't have the the desired impact because... We're not a video. People can't see it. People can't see it. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, do you want to go first? How about we look at the first letter of the title and whoever's letter comes first goes first.
0: Okay. Mine is, right. yours doesn't have a title, my friend. You need to retroactively <laughs> all add a right. title.
1: Okay, shit. Well, that didn't last very long. And on top of that, I am just pulling up the paper doc.
0: So your title starts with an F and mine starts with a K. So what does that mean, Eugene?
1: That means I go first.
0: Okay, is that how this works? Okay, all,
1: all right. right. My subject this week is Francis Bean Cobain launches Kurt Was Here Clothing Collection. Kurt Was Here is the name of the collection itself. So this story comes from Rolling Stone Magazine, who report on this new collection, which honors Kurt Cobain. If you're unfamiliar with Kurt Cobain, probably one of our generation, I guess. A-generations. This is me trying to... Clearly, I'm not a music journalist, but... No, I'm only like giggling because you said our
0: generation. And I was like, I don't know what you mean even by our generation.
1: A generation's uh, icon, I guess, like rock icon, grunge icon. People might take offense to that. They'd be like, oh, well, it's this and this. Well, it's less about that, obviously. As as is the case with everything I choose, it's never really about the superficial. It's never about the actual itself. name. Yeah, it's never about the news itself. Yeah. All right. So as I mentioned This is in honor of Kurt Cobain. The product itself takes inspiration from his artwork and his personal journal entries. And the work was curated by Cobain's daughter, Frances Bean Cobain. And she was only a few years old when her father mysteriously passed away. And I say mysterious because there's a lot of controversy around it. Wait, really?
0: I didn't know there was controversy.
1: Sorry, I know this is totally like an aside. So for those unfamiliar, the controversy lies in how he passed away. And they suspect someone was with him. And they pulled the trigger, which ultimately led to his demise. And Francis being Cobain was only a few years old when her father passed away. This is right around the 25th anniversary of his passing. This collection in some ways commemorates the 25th anniversary of Kurt Cobain's passing, which happened in 1994. Francis herself was born in 1992. So she was essentially a toddler when this all happened. And for a little bit of a sort of objective POV on this whole collection. It's 50 pieces, unisex sizing and styling. And the project is a partnership between the End of Music LLC, which is the business arm of Cobain's estate, and Live Nation merchandise. So this is maybe like a small tidbit that's of somewhat relevance. On August eighteenth, 2010, Frances Cobain inherited 37% of her late father's estate. So by virtue of this, Cobain took control over all the sort of assets, father's name and image from Kurt's former partner, Courtney Love. So overall, like, Frances herself has been pretty quiet. She's not really on social media. She's pretty low-key.
0: She didn't speak to the Rolling Stone for this article.
1: No, no, she didn't. As I start to unpack this whole thing, you'll kind of understand why I found it interesting. The whole angle around Kirk Cobain, Nirvana, and its appearance in licensing projects is actually pretty prevalent you've seen it quite a few times in various fast fashion retailers but this is the first time that cobain's foundation itself or i don't know if you can call it the foundation but you can call it a foundation oh the estate the cobain estate yeah so the estate (laughs) is involved yeah and this is kind of important because this is kind of where i want to take this conversation okay but in passing Proceeds from the collection will go to the Jed Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to suicide prevention among teens and young adults. Some proceeds, yeah. And it was rumored that this is the way in which Kurt Cobain passed was due to suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is kind of where the tie-in lies. But that's also the controversy, and this made me think about a few other artists who have posthumous collections. If you have any that come to mind, please feel free to add them.
0: You mean specifically apparel, like fashion?
1: More so that these artists have passed, but they've there's been some sort of monetization of their work Well, after the fact.
0: There's someone who's very big who's not a fine artist. Oh, I didn't mean to say that like a quiz question. Oh, it's Prince.
1: Yeah, Prince. I was actually going to put that, but I couldn't think of what his exact, I guess, tangible product was.
0: Well, Prince is having a new album come out.
1: Oh, yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah. That, that I was familiar which with. Which
0: is different, though. Which I think is different from your subject, because that is new artistic material, not yeah. republishing existing material.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're not republishing.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so other posthumous collections, Keith Haring, Basquiat, Warhol.
1: Yeah, so I think these are actually pretty iconic. You see them in a lot of different capacities, where there's fashion, might be a mug, etc., One thing that I found most interesting was I I, I was thinking to myself, what is the reason why these collections exist beyond the obvious of trying to sell things, right, to make money? And I found this verbiage on the Keith Haring Foundation website. And it was actually a very, very short three-point page on why the foundation was started. So Keith established the foundation shortly before he died. So this actually happened before he passed away. And he wanted to do three things, to preserve and exhibit his artwork, to provide support to not-for-profit organizations that assist children, as well as organizations involved in education, research, and care related to HIV and AIDS. And the last one, to be a source of accurate information about his life and work, and this website being an example. I tried looking for something similar for the Cobain Estate and of Music LLC. Honestly, it might just be too new, and there's a lot of drama, well, up until 2010 anyways, around ownership, et cetera.
0: Yeah, between love and his daughter, yeah.
1: Yeah, so this leads me down this current path. What are your overall thoughts on posthumous collections?
0: Okay, so I have a little bit of, I don't know if I'd say expertise, but a little bit of research done on the subject previously. And actually, most big artists have an estate of some kind. I say big in you know the herring Basquiat warhol level like if their work was selling for a significant amount of money while they were still alive then they probably have an estate that is in charge of their work of archival material of education around them all of that i think the existence of those estates is really important because you know part of what the keith, the keith herring foundation said is about accurate information and so they can supply stuff that we didn't know about these artists and also correct anything that is out there. I think the interesting thing is when you talk about products, like what is the point of producing products? Part of it could be, you know, the continuation of the estate, because I think estates do do work that is not commercial. Like, You know, going through, for example, like Kurt Cobain's music and maybe like archiving it a certain way or labeling it or like finding interesting facts about
1: how he made it. Like that's not commercially rewarding. So another thing, too, is providing grants. So, for example, you know, that's not really something that will make you money.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So those are all things that cost them money. Right. So how can they make money and also, you know, pay for the man hours that go into this is by selling products, you know? So in that way, it's kind of a means to another bigger end. It's not like Mm -hmm. I suppose probably there are estates out there who are selling derivative work and it's really just making them lots of money. I assume that that Mm -hmm. exists like someone is doing that but I would yep. guess that the majority are doing it so that they can do other work with the money.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I, I have to admit, when I first came across this, my immediate positioning was overtly negative. It was like, man, it just feels like... Well, I, I mean, I've I, I've never met Frances. I don't know who she is, but it, it was an interesting relationship because she was so young when when things happened, but she basically took control over what is you know a pretty big chunk of wealth right a big pretty big asset and I was trying to figure out like what is the desired outcome from projects like this like this collection but then as I started looking more into it and it's a little bit more difficult because I think Keith Haring had a very clear idea of what his foundation was meant to do and what his goals were it's a little bit more difficult when things suddenly happen and things aren't set up properly correct
0: well i mean we don't really know i think francis has the right to be private about it like there's nothing that says you know you have to say what you're gonna do with the money when you sell a product optimistically i would err on saying that she probably cares about her father's image and her father's legacy and understands that like Cobain's music is still important to a chunk of people out there and maybe she's gonna go on and do something with I guess not like directly because of the proceeds but in general like the money that is made from her father's reputation that she might be interested in using that in some way to you know preserve his legacy like maybe she wants to publish a book you know hypothetically maybe she wants to open a little museum like there's a lot of possibilities
1: yeah yeah so i i mean that's kind of the direction i would want things to go i think in general we've talked a lot about artist led foundations i think in many ways artist led foundations are quite pure for the most part because i think a lot of artists enter the world of art based on an interest or a passion, right? So there's a sense of purity in what they want to achieve with their success. But it also could potentially go sideways when it isn't in the hands of the artist.
0: Yeah. Well, I also wonder about, I kind of have an answer to this question, but I guess I would also ask, is it possible in any way that these t-shirts this collection with the Kurt Cobain art and drawings on it is important by itself like is the collection itself meaningful even if nothing else is done with the money that she
1: earns i would say it is hard for you to create context with it on its own without some sort of curation And I guess narrative, really. Like, I think at least with this collection, there's a potential story that could exist.
0: Well, you know, what's interesting is that I mentioned Prince and I was like, oh, it's not quite the same. But now I'm realizing actually it's more similar when I talk about Prince than when we talk about Keith Haring, because Kurt Cobain was a music artist. So I guess what I'm saying is like in terms of context, I would still link Cobain's legacy to the music, as opposed to like drawings that he did in his life, and his music potentially continuing to have like some kind of positive effect on people's lives.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I like I said, I think my my initial stance was pretty negative, but now it's it's much more open minded, and I think. Is it's there too, something
0: you would want someone to do for you if you died?
1: To even think about it, to even fathom about it. Sorry, I think touch it wood. Narcissistic. Yeah. It feels a little narcissistic.
0: I mean, in one... Okay, this is like the very... This is the most morbid we've ever gotten. But let's say you, unfortunately, you know, something happens and you die before your time. And, you know, in a lot of ways, you've started doing projects that are meaningful to you. Like, is there... Would you hope that someone tries to continue the work that you did?
1: Yeah, I guess if you position it that way versus... Your untimely death, if I position it as... (laughs) The work needs to come before the person. I think that's what's most important if I was to ever have that happen.
0: Okay, I'll keep that in mind.
1: Yeah, yeah. For me to see this project in its most successful light, I see the commercial aspect of it part of a a broader goal. But I think maybe it's just too early to see what those goals are, right? Like the way I... Potentially, maybe if this thing's successful, then you see more cards being revealed, like the hand being revealed. But if it flops, then it makes it a little bit more challenging.
0: There is one more thing to add that I don't feel like I, we mentioned. was that you said at the beginning of your description that a lot of Cobain Nirvana imagery has already been used by other brands. Yeah. Without the estate approval. So Francis doing this might be might be because she just wants to take control over that narrative not just not i don't know her i don't know if she has like a better perspective on it but that could be the angle as well that she feels like my father and the his music's image has been co-opted and i i want to have like a say
1: yeah i mean i it it still is better in the hands of the estate than giving it to like forever 21 Yeah, exactly. There's no argument around that. Yeah, definitely. All right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good place to move on to your subject.
0: Let's do it. going to be a bit of a long description. I feel like I always pick these topics that require a long amount of time of me explaining what's going on. My subject this week is Kickstarter's year of turmoil, which is the name of a Slate article covering this. But the recent news, even though Slate calls it a year of turmoil, is that Kickstarter recently fired two people who were prominent Kickstarter union organizers, and there is controversy right now surrounding them being letting go and whether they were let go specifically because of their role in organizing the Kickstarter union. Okay, so that's the recent news. I'm going to give some background on the evolution of the Kickstarter union, and actually, I'm going to start with a definition of what a union is because at the top of this podcast, Before we started recording, Eugene said that young people don't know what unions are.
1: What I meant was, I think when you're 22, 23, and you're just finding your feet and your direction in your professional career, I don't think unions are the top of your mind.
0: I mean, to be straight with you, part of the reason I picked this is because I was like, let me just clarify in my own mind what a union is so that I can talk about it. So that's part of the reason I picked this is because of like my personal interest in like understanding why a union is potentially uh, uh, something that employees would be interested in. Okay, so a union is an organization of employees that negotiate with the companies, corporations, businesses on behalf of all union members. So a union is essentially this mediator between employers and workers they are considered old school in the sense that a lot of people, including myself, associate them with like factories and manufacturing, you know, as part of that era of industry. And it's true that the way a lot of creative businesses are set up are not really Environments in which unions naturally foster, you know, deregulation, more competition, labor mobility, unclear boundary lines between who is management and not all of those things don't really lead to easy union organization. But lately we have seen a lot of unions being organized in journalism, for example, journalism and media, most notably, probably the vice union was recently recognized by the company. And Kickstarter, so they started this union drive in March of 2019. And last year was kind of a rocky year for Kickstarter. They had a CEO change. They kind of had a bit of like kerfuffle about what their company mission is.
1: Do you like that word? (laughs) Well, I just don't hear very often. Um, I think uh, mm -hmm. maybe you can also talk a little bit about kickstarter's positioning as a quote-unquote tech company because what is most surprising is perhaps that kickstarter was on this path to push against what the expectation was to be a tech company
0: yeah so kickstarter on the surface of it is a crowdfunding platform right for independent for individuals who just want to bring a project into the world And they were kind of the first people who used this sort of like Patreon supporter model. So you could in a way say that is like their tech innovation. But more than that, they're actually classified as a public benefit corporation. And from the beginning, the founders said, you know, Kickstarter, what's important to us is adhering to specific values as opposed to like going public and making, you know, millions of dollars for our founders and it seemed actually like in the history of the company that they were really doing that. They were supporting causes that were important, that were not like necessarily commercially beneficial, such as like net neutrality. And a lot of employees have been really happy with that. Like they felt like they felt like beyond getting work satisfaction in terms of like what I do, I really believe in what this company does. Like I'm behind the Kickstarter. Mission of funding good projects and of doing good in the world at large, as opposed to just like doing the thing that is easier and that will make us more money. Okay, so a little bit more about recently what happened is that last week Clarissa Redwine was fired, and then this week Taylor Moore was fired, and there's like a lot of internet conversation about whether they were fired because of their union organizing efforts or if it was because of poor performance. And this is one thing that I was interested in about this news, which is how can you possibly know as an outsider, like what the truth is in this matter? Because Kickstarter says, you know, we put these employees under a performance improvement plan. Like we Over the last like six months have been talking to them about, you know, not meeting set targets and like essentially you need to do a better job or else we will fire you. But then the employees themselves and also some colleagues that Slate spoke to say that that didn't happen. And as an outsider, it really feels like maybe I should just ignore like the entire part of this story because it doesn't seem like we're going to get a clear answer on it.
1: Yeah, I I think that some of the stuff is all speculative. You can speculate. I mean, we've done this a lot. We just think about what are potential outcomes and then break them down.
0: Well, no, I mean like I guess what is concerning to me or what is interesting to me is, you know, does a company have any sort of responsibility to be transparent to outsiders about to the public about their internal promotion, raise, you know, improvement policies, like I assume that Kickstarter at the size it is, does have protocols and, you know, set standards in place, but they're not a public company. So they don't, they also don't have to tell people what those are.
1: Any sort of transparency can be applied in a way where it's just marketing. That's how I look at it.
0: Or like if they can't show receipts, essentially, then people online, it seems, are taking the narrative where Kickstarter is like the bad guy and red wine and more are the good guys. And I put those in quotes because like I, I think that's too binary a way of looking at it. But I I feel that the narrative is very easy to like shift in that perspective. Because of this lack of transparency about the what the company is doing internally in terms of like employee policies. So I find that an interesting element of this. Additionally, what's interesting to me is that, yes, Kickstarter, as you mentioned, is like not a tradition. Well, I don't even know what traditional means anymore. Kickstarter isn't exactly a tech company the way Google and Amazon are because they're they've been more like we want to do good than some other tech companies right and the union also has that in their minds as well Um, so something from this slate article that i'm just going to read it says Most of them describe feeling disappointed in a company that they feel hasn't had its external ethos reflected within its internal culture. Their offer is also distinct from most union drives since their other primary focus is ensuring Kickstarter's stated communitarian mission is mirrored not only by its internal policies but by its business practices too. A former employee said, we all chose to work at Kickstarter because it was kind of an anti-capitalist company to start out with, like with the collective funding structure and the public benefit corporation status. So the Kickstarter union is atypical in the sense that it's not just being put in place to negotiate better salaries and like better working rates, but it's put in place to kind of like keep Kickstarter in check. And that's really interesting to me in light of you know, a lot of things that have happened in the last year where employees at different companies have been asking their man- senior management and their CEOs, can you be less evil, essentially? And I feel like we talked about this. Did we talk about the Ogilvy Ice issue?
1: Oh, yes, we did. We did. We talked about how some people are undertaking projects of questionable morality?
0: Yeah, yeah, ethics, essentially. Or like that the company's decisions don't reflect the individual ethical values of their employees. So we've had people at Google and Amazon and Walmart, you know, say, hey, we're not cool with you doing ABC and act. Actually, like those actions are really similar to what a union could do in theory, because that is also like organizing employees as like one unit to step out and hold their bosses accountable. So I think that's really interesting, like that function of
1: unions. I found this ultimately a little bit surprising, I guess, more so because, yeah, I had I had personally positioned Kickstarter as, oh, they're different. The challenge here is not that they're. Maybe this is for you to correct me. They're not necessarily anti-union. Are they anti-union in the sense of how it's been bubbling up and forming?
0: It's really hard to say because of the whole like not having an inner view of the way the company's policies are. Like I don't feel I can confidently say that more and red wine being let go are indications of union busting like i don't really totally feel comfortable saying that but we can look at the fact that kickstarter has not recognized their efforts to organize and they haven't made it easy in any way which in one way is unremarkable because that's what most companies do like They'll say, okay, you can do union organizing, you know, on your own time, not using anything office related. And we're just going to ignore the fact that you're doing this. But the remarkable thing, like you said, is that we thought Kickstarter was different. Like, I guess it's interesting because we thought, like, if there is any tech company that is going to make a way for this to work, it, it would be Kickstarter.
1: So is it disappointment? Um, Not really, because I'm not... Well, let's put it this way. I'm not so loyal to Kickstarter as a company that I care that much. But what I do think is more interesting is this. This is the broader, broader thing. The movement I see happening now is a revisitation of capitalism. Because I think this, this late stage, I think that's what it is. I think people are now sort of pushing back and and understanding where we are, why we're here, and what caused us to be in this position. Yeah. I mean, I guess for those unfamiliar with late-stage capitalism, how would you describe it? It's more like the the it's almost the the, the comical outcomes that occur on the basis of trying to maximize profits.
0: Exactly. That's a good way to yeah. say it. It's capitalism pushed to the extreme you know, like situations that we didn't think we'd be in where, you you know, pick almost any news item about labor.
1: (laughs) A good one would be like, for example, a kid cannot afford to ride the bus to go to school. So he starts a lemonade stand, something along those lines, right? Well,
0: also a very typical example might be, A Uber driver who needs to pee into a water bottle because he works 16 hour shifts and can't do restroom breaks.
1: So this, this is what I think is actually more interesting is that if you're not in a country that is subjected to the perils of late stage capitalism, as if you're not the one affected, I do think that when companies like Kickstarter come to the forefront and There is a tinge of discussion around what they're doing, and as it pertains to uh, unionization, not to say unionization is is socialism. I think there's a part of it where it's more community driven, right? It's like trying to make things a little bit more sustainable. I don't want to get too deep into it because I not only because I think it detracts from what I'm trying to say, but also because I'm not entirely versed in the topic to like give you the nitty gritty of it. But what I do think is is important to recognize is that in various countries or whatnot that are undergoing these challenges, I do see that this discussion around capitalism sometimes being pushed to the side, but it's in reality the reason why there's a lot of discontent. So your inability to have, like, let's say, let's use examples of people graduating coming out of school with a ton of student debt, inability to, I don't know, buy a home, no career trajectory, all these things are probably just as important as any sort of political issue that might arise. Because I think that my my belief, and this is someone, you know, I, I think that my belief is that when it comes to people's unhappiness, like if you're taken care of, I think that the political structures maybe matter a little bit less. That might open a whole can of worms, but I truly believe that a lot of stuff, like if the, if you feel the system is taking care of you, then you're less compelled to push back against the system.
0: I don't feel like I can respond to that.
1: Yeah, and that's totally fine. Like I, I think that I, I deliberately left out some exact examples because I think it would... Potentially open up a, a new can of worms in terms of where this discussion. Yeah, is going I don't. To go. That's
0: not where I was interested in taking this. And you, you always do the like magnify times a thousand version of whatever it is this that I talk out. about. Yeah, and I don't know. Like, I, I personally don't. I individually do not find that really helpful in understanding this. Like I said, I really did pick this topic to get a better understanding of. different a union specifically, like not just the, the bigger topic of late stage capitalism and labor mistreatment, but what a union itself, that word and theoretical entity can do for a company. And I guess also in the context of this podcast, like how that might be helpful to different creative individuals who are in, com- I would assume, mostly in companies that do not have unions that, that that was my interest so I'm, I'm actually I'm just gonna not touch what you said yeah I think But I mean to get back to my interest essentially is like I haven't been in a full-time job for a while but I would be really curious to experience union organization to so see what that is like from an employee perspective I think what it can do which I don't I don't really see another alternative is that it brings employees together in an organizational body so that you don't wind up being an individual employee with some kind of issue with upper management and you're alone in that and I think a lot of people would say that you know my experiences with HR is that HR is not on my side right so how do you correct that situation where it feels like every employee is like one on one themselves themselves in negotiation with their employer like it, it does seem quite obvious to me that you get together with your colleagues and you think of yourselves as one whole unit that is employed by your employer not to say that a union is like a necessarily good thing i just think it is I I think it is a very interesting proposition. Yeah, interesting in the sense that like could be beneficial when I say interesting. Um to talk a little bit about like the bit where you speculate is well there are still employees at Kickstarter who are organizing even in the absence of some of their lead organizers. So Will eventually get news, right? Either they dissipate or they're all fired or they successfully get a union recognized. So that would be exciting to see. Is there anything else you want to ask me?
1: No, that's everything. Cool. I thought they were both pretty interesting, clear, and concise topics today. All right. You remember how we asked the community what they wanted to hear and they wanted more banter? Let's ask each other one question. And that one question will be like, what was the most memorable thing that happened to you since we last spoke? <laughs> Let's
0: okay. Let's get the Banson. Let's uh, get the Banson. Come on. Um, Most memorable. When did we last speak?
1: Just say seven days. Let's just use seven day timelines. Okay.
0: Um, Can you go first? Because I can't think of anything.
1: Oh, really? Hmm. Interesting. My, my initial... Thought that popped into my mind was like, Is her life that boring?
0: (laughs) My life is pretty boring. My uh, life is pretty boring. I think that's fine. Is it? it? Yes, my life is pretty boring. I want it to be on the record that my life is boring.
1: This was mine, and this is, it wasn't really giving me anxiety, but like I was traveling for about five weeks, and this is the first time in maybe like three or four years that I've started to play. More competitive football, like soccer again. What do you mean by more competitive? As in like, you know, you train regularly, like there is a a fundamental desire from everyone on the pitch to win. Uh, it's not like I did not know out. you were doing that. Yeah. So I was like, oh man, I'm not going to be gone for five weeks. I and mean, it's also in a position that I haven't played for a while, which is goalkeeper. And I had a few sessions before I left in early August and I came back, you know, middle of September. I was kind of thinking about this, I'm like, man, I'm gonna be so unfit when I come back. But before I left, the one thing that I realized, and I think I realized this with any new skill that I return to or any any sort of uh, skill-based activity I return to after a while, your propensity to pick it up and or to learn and better yourself actually happens a lot faster. And, and I was actually in many ways excited to come back knowing maybe physically I wasn't as fit, but I think mentally I was already working through the problems or the skills that I needed to work on before I left, right? And I would say when I came back, like actually everything was as it should have been, like everything was not regressive. It wasn't like I was starting over, maybe fitness, but that'll come, but it was just like the technical side, the stuff I hadn't done for like three or four years. So that was that was nice. Yeah. And I think that's one thing I find yeah. Well, I guess my, my last sort of uh, my my sort of takeaway from it is I think this is a very real application of what experience means. Cause I think experience in some ways is also the experience of deconstructing and solving problems and how to do it in an efficient manner.
0: See, I'm really glad I asked you to go first because even your banter is like constructed around takeaways and learnings. So like if I had if I had gone first and been like, oh, I went to this great party on Saturday and got like totally wasted, then it would have just been like completely desperate. By the way, that did not happen. Um so my related memorable thing is so you know I've been doing ceramics, right? And I've been doing ceramics for about 20 weeks now and do like a class a week. And recently I got... So there are different stages in ceramics. I don't know if you know this. So you use the clay and you make your pot or whatever it is. And then you fire it once. And then you get it back. And it's basically hard, but you have to glaze it. So I was at that stage where you have to glaze it. And had seven things that I was really like pleased with. Like very happy. And I go and glaze all of them. And basically it's all shit. Like the process is just not like going smoothly i already shit oh like, sorry yeah what that, makes it so let, shitty? um traditionally you dip a pot into like paint essentially and pull it back out and if it's smooth when it comes out you know that it will fire well essentially and you'll get like the surface treatment that you want and so i was glazing and it was just all coming out like bumpy and with holes in it like Like part of it was me, part of it might be the glaze. Like I'm just not, I have not perfected this skill at all. So then my teacher was like really encouraging and he was basically just kind of like, oh, it can be an experiment. Like you should just fire them anyway, you know? And I was like, no, I'm not gonna like go ahead and fire something that I already know is gonna turn out poorly. So yeah, go ahead.
1: You saying poorly is... Uh, but a poor outcome is based off of what is the expectation of good ceramics. Well, yes. And it's no, outcome. You're totally right. Aesthetically.
0: You're totally right. And that's also my teacher's <laughs> point that, like, as I usually am. God, I'm just, just going to take that one clip of me saying you're totally right. And just I regret. I regret already. Um, you're right in the sense that you and my teacher meant the same thing like maybe this will turn out to have a really interesting experimental effect but that is just not what i wanted and so i basically redid all of it
1: interesting i don't know what I my takeaway from done this is anyways really cuz i would have done it anyways just to see what happens when this happens um. cuz then you have that in your repertoire you know okay if this is the outcome aesthetically if this is what i do this is what i can expect unless you already knew because you've done it before no I, don't know.
0: I mean you're right that i didn't know what i would expect but i guess i went into this i went into that session with like an expectation of what i wanted to get out of it and i was like not happy with it going another way yeah 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 I hope people enjoyed this insight into our personal lives. A good place to cap things off for the day. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at macon.com. dot
1: You can also subscribe to us to your favorite podcast admin platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend.
0: Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at sharice at C H A R I S, or eugene at macon.com, E U G E N E. We love hearing
1: from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.